Recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christogenia Internet Radio. Today is Friday, October 31st, 2014. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. I don't have much in the way of announcements or banter tonight. Tomorrow night I'm going to do a program with open lines, and, and um, I hope that there's participation. I plan on warming it up with some of my um, comments based upon last week's program and some of the feedback that I've gotten from last week's Saturday program with Brother Ryan entitled Walking the Walk. Of course, I have... Um, well, well, I have my critics, of course, but my critics are, are um, stupid enough to criticize me without listening to to what I say about particular topics in other programs, talking about eschatology and talking about walking the Christian walk in our faith is two different things. One has not much to do with the other, because no matter how close we are to the fall of Babylon, we should still walk that same walk in Christ which the apostles had exhorted us to 2,000 years ago. That's the meaning of many of the parables of Christ, that we are always anticipating his return and the vanquishing of the enemies of God. Sunday afternoon, Sven Longshanks is back. His internet connection is up and running, and we will do a, a schedule Christianity Europe segment. The time is um, dependent upon my, my, my calculation. I still have to verify it. I believe it will be at 1 p.m. Eastern time, and that's because of a time change in Europe. We're trying to keep this program at the same time in Europe because that's the audience that the program is intended for, regardless of how many Europeans actually listen. So perhaps um, people who want to listen can check the front page of org or the event schedule and, and I'll post, I'll make sure the time posted currently on the event schedule is correct, and it'll be on the front page of the website Sunday morning. The Epistles of Paul, 1 Corinthians, our fifth segment of our presentation of this epistle, delivering sinners to Satan. Discussing 1 Corinthians chapter 4, in the last segment of our presentation of this epistle, we saw that Paul made an analogy of himself to a skilled architect laying the foundation of Christ wherever he went with the expectation that others would come and build upon that foundation after him, thereby further edifying the Christian assembly. As we also pointed out, Peter made a similar analogy by comparing the members of the body of Christ to living stones, Christ himself being the chief cornerstone of his own ecclesia. 
At the same time, Paul also made an analogy of himself to a planter and of Apollos to one who waters, Apollos being one of those men who followed behind Paul building upon the foundation of the gospel of Christ, which he laid. Apollos was analogized to one who waters, indicating that the various servants of Christ had differing abilities and differing roles intending for the assembly of God. However, in our discussion, we did not elaborate on how Paul had concluded his analogy, so we will do so here, where Paul said that I have planted, Apollos has watered, but Yahweh has given increase, so that neither he who is planting is anybody, nor he who is watering, but Yahweh who is making to grow. The denominational religious organizations, which we can hardly call Christian, have done everything they can to pull wolves, dogs, and pigs into the sheepfold, thereby scattering the sheep, building hay, straw, and stubble atop the foundation of Christ, scattering the sheep when they are not at first devoured. Yet identity Christians should not seek to emulate the fishermen for the period of fishing is over. Rather, identity Christians seek to emulate the hunters of the prophecy of Jeremiah chapter 16, where the word of Yahweh says, But Yahweh lives that brought up the children of Israel from the land of the north and from all the lands whither he has driven them. And I will bring them again into their land that I gave unto their fathers. Behold, I will send for many fishers, saith Yahweh, and they shall fish them. And after will I send for many hunters, and they shall hunt them from every mountain and from every hill and out of the holes of the rocks. The lost sheep of the tribes of Israel had wandered over every hill, as Ezekiel chapter 34 describes. And it is the Christian duty to seek them. Those who find them are regathering the sheep as the gospel of Christ commands. Of course, only identity Christians produce the historical, linguistic, and archaeological studies necessary in order to dig the children of Israel out of the holes of the rocks. So that they may, be, they may be identified in the world of today. However, with all of this knowledge, and no matter how brilliant our explanations of ancient history, in harmony with the prophets and the gospel, and no matter how expertly we may be able to plant or to water, it is Yahweh God who provides the seeds for the planter, and it is Yahweh God by whom those seeds grow when they are watered. Likewise, with the building of the assembly, we have many architects and we have many stonemasons, but in the first place, 
it is Yahweh God who must provide those living stones of which Peter spoke. We, being men, can do nothing useful without our God. And therefore, he gets all of the credit and all of the glory, as Paul had intended to say. He who is planting is not anybody, nor he who is watering. Discussing Paul's words, in the last two chapters of his first epistle to the Corinthians, we saw that the mystery of God was what Yahweh God would do to his people Israel, and how he would reconcile them to himself in Christ. The fishers cast a wide net, but the good fish are identified in the holes of the rocks through history and archaeology and the words of the prophets. We also saw that this message of Yahweh's reconciliation to the dispersed children of Israel was a part of the milk of the gospel and not the meat. It's foundational. It's basic. It's right there in the prophets spelled out in plain language. If people would only believe the prophets, then they would understand the New Testament. Well, the milk of the gospel alone would be sufficient for our preservation, as Paul exclaimed. In the meat of the gospel, we are able to exercise our senses for the discernment of good and evil. Here in the opening of 1 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul substantiates the assertion that he has already been elucidating the mystery of God to the assemblies to which he preached, where he says that in that manner, a man must reckon us as attendants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of Yahweh. In our presentation of the book of Acts here last year, we had explained that Paul wrote this epistle to the Corinthians before leaving Ephesus and before the Pentecost, which he planned to spend there. 1 Corinthians 16.8 Leaving Ephesus sometime later, Paul went to the Troad, hoping to find Titus, as he had mentioned in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. And he did not find him, so he proceeded to Macedonia, spending the winter in Nicopolis. Acts chapter 20 tells us that after that very sojourn in Macedonia, Paul had traveled to Greece. And it is evident that during that journey, Paul had written his second epistle to the Corinthians, precipitating his arrival in Corinth for his second recorded visit there. Understanding when these epistles were written helps us to understand what it was that Paul referred to when he made certain statements and also helps us to place the content of the epistles into the historic context of his ministry. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul wrote, For if I have boasted anything to him of you, I am not ashamed. 
But as we spoke all things to you in truth, even so our boasting, which I made before Titus, is found a truth. So Paul proclaimed that he had spoken all things to the Corinthians in truth, and he must have done so after writing this first epistle to the Corinthians and before he visited the Corinthians for a second time. That's when he must have wrote those words in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. A few sentences later, Paul went on to say, I rejoice, therefore, that I have confidence in you in all things. And the point here is that Paul was holding nothing back from the Corinthians, but had already taught them all of the fundamentals of his Christian creed. Therefore, these mysteries which he talks about, he had already revealed to the Corinthians as he says here. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul had told this same assembly that we speak wisdom of Yahweh that had been hidden in a mystery, had been, past tense, which Yahweh had predetermined before the ages for our honor. But just as it is written, things which eye did not see and ear did not hear and came not into the heart of man, those things Yahweh has prepared for them that love him. Yet to us, Yahweh reveals them through the Spirit. Here in chapter 4 of his first epistle to the Corinthians, Paul asserts that he and Apollos are attendants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Therefore, with this we have substantiation of our interpretation of Paul's earlier comments, that the mystery of God was revealed to the apostles, and that mystery is what Yahweh had purposed for his people Israel, which was already being preached by the apostles to the Corinthians and others. This is the mystery which Paul had said at the close of Romans chapter 16 was being revealed in his own time by the prophetic writings of the scripture. All things being revealed, we too must be able to find them in the prophecies of the Old Testament scripture, especially using the epistles of Paul as a guide. That is the basis for Christian identity which we esteem to be the only true and factual Christianity. And I dwell on this these past few weeks on this understanding of what the mysteries of God are because of the way these concepts are abused by denominational so-called Christians and Catholics, and other such people, who want to pretend that somehow these things are still a mystery, when in actuality, these things were spelled out throughout the prophets, throughout Isaiah, throughout Jeremiah, throughout Ezekiel, what God would do, what he has in store for those that love him, of his people Israel. This should be no mystery. It should no longer be a mystery since the first century, since the apostles brought the gospel to the dispersed nations of Israel. The mystery 
should be revealed. It should be opened. Everybody should know this. Everybody who's included should know it. Yet the priesthoods, which have pilfered Christianity for themselves, continue to hide it. Only in Christian identity are they revealed once again. Verse 2, 1 Corinthians chapter 4. But furthermore, you must require with stewards that one is found faithful. Paul counting himself and Apollos as stewards. This is an interesting um, diversion from the reading of the King James Version. The editors of the Nestle Aland, Novum Testamentum Grecae, have here, but furthermore, it is required in stewards that one is found faithful. Reading, it is required, and the verb is zetaitahi. The reading which is found in the Codex Vaticanus and in the majority text. It is required rather than what we see here in the Christogenian New Testament where it says, you must require, and the Greek word is zetaita. The reading of the majority text, it is required, is also found in the King James Version. The text of the Christogenian New Testament follows the 3rd century papyrus, P46, the Codices Sinaiticus, Alexandrinus, Ephraimi Siri, and Claromontanus. All of those have a formative verb which is either indicative or imperative, and a second person active plural. You must do this, you being plural. Y'all must do this in, 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 um, in English. The Nestle Aland critical apparatus states that these manuscripts may be in error. And they call this type of error an ex itasismo, which means that they have substituted letters with the same phonetic value, attempting to attribute the differences amongst the text here. However, we may readily assert that the precise opposite is true, that the codices Claromontanus, Ephraim Siri, Alexandrinus, Sinaiticus, and, and the papyrus P46, which dates to about 200 AD, they are correct, and that perhaps the Codex Vaticanus and the majority text, which, which the King James Version follows, perhaps they are in error, perhaps even for the same reason, which is also arguable. The reason for the difference is arguable. But the manuscripts which he have followed, which we have followed in the creation of the Christogenian New Testament, those which have, you must require, you, Paul speaking 
to the General Assembly of Christians at Corinth, saying, you must require that with stewards one is found faithful. That the manuscripts which we have followed are the ones with the proper reading is clear from the agreement in context with the passage which follows, which is found in verse 3. Paul is telling his congregation that they must scrutinize their ministers or stewards, and then he offers himself for that same purpose where he says that he may by you be examined in the very next verse. Therefore, we see the context of the phrase, you must require here in this verse. In the authoritarian organized churches, the reading of the Codex Vaticanus and the majority text would certainly be preferred, since those organizations despise the Christian concept of community governance, where ministers are obligated to the people whom they serve and not to some supposed ecclesiastical authority from outside of the community. The proper reading in verse 2 here is certainly from the manuscripts which have, but furthermore, you must require with stewards that one is found faithful. The proof is in verse 3 where Paul offers himself and he says, now to me, it is in the least matter that I am examined by you, or in the days of mankind, but neither do I examine myself. Paul doesn't question his own motives. The Greek phrase translated, or in the days of mankind, is literally or by a day of mankind. We have chosen to keep the translation as literal as we could, but we do not disagree with the interpretation here found in the King James Version where it says, or of man's judgment. Paul can only be referring to this current age where men judge others by their own perception. Our true judge is Yahweh our God and only he can judge us equitably. And that's a theme ongoing in this portion of Paul's epistle, where he says, indeed, not one thing for myself am I conscious, although not in this have I been proven, but it is the prince or the Lord who examines me. Here Paul attests, that he has not conducted his ministry for his own personal gain, even though his ultimate acceptance before Christ will not be predicated upon that. He goes on to say, Consequently, do not judge one prematurely until the prince should come, who will both illuminate the secrets of darkness and make known the counsels of hearts. Then, at that time, to each there will be approval from Yahweh. 
it may have been better for us to write in verse 5, do not condemn one prematurely. As we shall see here, what Paul means by the Christian judgment of sinners when we arrive at 1 Corinthians chapter 5. There, it is fully evident that while Christians should not condemn their sinful brethren, they are nevertheless obligated to separate sinners from the Christian community. The problem lies in the Greek word krino, and that's the cause of a lot of confusion. The Greek word krino infers both judgment and condemnation. Condemnation is the execution of punishment in judgment. However, here Paul also explains why Christians should not execute judgment against their brethren, why they should not condemn their brethren, because only God himself can judge men fairly, since only God can truly illuminate the secrets of darkness, which reveals the real motives for what men may see as other men's sins. Even with that, Paul confidently affirms that ultimately to each there will be approval, ostensibly because all of Israel shall indeed be saved. And we will see more of that here this evening. Verse 6 Now these things, brethren, I have changed the illustration of for myself and Apollos on account of you. The Greek word metaschematizo is to transfer in a figure here in the King James Version. According to Liddell and Scott, Plato used the term to mean to change the form of, which seems to be the most literal definition. The word is also found in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Philippians chapter 3, and once in the Old Testament scriptures in 4 Maccabees. Perhaps we may have better read the preposition as two rather than four. Paul is saying that he has transferred the illustration of the things which he is explaining to himself and Apollos. Or in other words, that he has used himself and Apollos in his examples here for a particular purpose. And then he goes on to explain that purpose. In order that with us you learn not beyond the things which have been written, that not for one's benefit are you inflated against another. Some manuscripts have learned not to think beyond the things. So Paul has made examples of himself and Apollos in order that the Corinthian Christians learn not beyond the things which have been written. Meaning that it is the scripture that should be the guiding light of Christians and not the personalities of men, 
which we seen, which we had seen Paul criticize the Corinthians for earlier in this epistle, where they were choosing personalities to follow rather than all of them choosing to follow Christ. While all of the reasons for which Paul is about to criticize the Corinthians are not yet evident in this epistle, when we read it to this point, it is evident that the Corinthians did have dissension within their assembly, and that they had been judging according to the judgments of man, and not according to the scripture. By making a reference to the things which had been written, Paul must be referring to the Old Testament writings. And the Corinthians should govern their assembly by them. Paul has already used the phrases for it is written, or as it is written, four times in this epistle, quoting scripture on each occasion. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, again, citing the writings from the Old Testament, Paul says in verse 11, Now these things as examples happen to them, and have been written for our admonition to those whom have attained to the fulfillments of the ages. Paul is warning the Corinthians that for the benefit of a particular member of their assembly, they should not inflate themselves against one or more of the other members of their assembly. This seems to reflect a serious disagreement among the Corinthians concerning how they had handled the accusations against a certain member of their assembly, which Paul introduces here in chapter 5. And he goes on in verse 7, here in chapter 4, to state, Who are you that you make a distinction? Now what do you have that you did not comprehend? And if then you did comprehend, why do you boast as if not comprehending? And that word comprehend, the Greek word lambano, literally is received, as the King James has it three times. In this context, the word means to seize with the mind, to apprehend, to comprehend, to take, as in to understand. So, speaking of words and ideas taken from the scripture, it's a comprehending, which is what the receiving is. The receiving of God's word is in understanding it. Paul had made examples of himself and Apollos. Then he explained that stewards of the assembly must be liable to examination. And then he asserted that the scripture and not man should be upheld as the authority of the assembly, where he advised them not to learn beyond the things which have been written since... Not all learning is valid in the learning of this world as opposed to the word of God is folly, as Paul had explained earlier in this epistle. Now, Paul infers that certain Corinthians have inflated themselves against others 
for the benefit of someone else. And here Paul asks, who are you that you make a distinction? If for the benefit of one, we inflate ourselves against another, then we are not judging fairly according to the scripture. If we understood the scripture, we would neither boast nor inflate ourselves in judgment. It's not us who sees right and wrong. It's Yahweh God, and his law is the rule by which we must measure it. Rather, making a distinction, we are being partial in our judgment. Since all men should judge and be judged equally in accordance with the word of God, And those who judge men should do so with humility. Because, as Paul explains in Galatians chapter 6, they themselves may also sin. Verse 8, already have you been satiated or filled? Already are you enriched? Without our intervention, have you ruled? Then, surely, I would be obliged that you had ruled, in order that we also, with you, may rule together. Here in verse 8, we have three clauses which are marked as questions. Neither the Nestle Alan text, the King James, nor any other version have marked these as questions. The literal translation along with the context of the passage, must speak for themselves. The verbs here are in the indicative mood, which is often used for interrogatory statements as well as explanatory ones. And even without an interrogatory particle, there are many examples of this in Paul's writing that are noticed by the King James and other versions. However, most of the translations of this passage 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 8. Most of the translations which we have seen do appear to detect the sarcasm in Paul's statements. That the Corinthians have not achieved the things which Paul mentions here. They had not been full or satiated. They had not been enriched ostensibly referring to that treasure in heaven, which is the only true Christian treasure. And they had not yet ruled, meaning that the kingdom of God had not yet overthrown the kingdoms of the world. Therefore, they have no reason to think of themselves as being superior to their own brethren. Verse 9. Indeed, I suppose Yahweh has appointed us of the last of the ambassadors destined to die, seeing that we have become a spectacle to the cosmos, both to messengers and to men, or to angels and to men. Paul is humbling himself for an example, as he explained. 
And he admonishes the Corinthian Christians to whom he refers that they should not exalt themselves. As Paul explained it, for one's benefit, they must not inflate themselves against others. And even the apostles were destined to die. All men should be humble because all men face that same death and judgment. And he goes on to say, We are fools for the sake of the anointed. But are you prudent among the anointed? We are weak. But are you strong? Are you held in honor and we without esteem? Now, all of the other translations which we have noticed also read these three questions as statements. And that would be fine if the reader were able to detect the sarcasm in Paul's statements. Paul is not saying that these Corinthians, whom he has in mind, are prudent, strong, and esteemed in honor. Rather, he is only asserting that their estate is no better than that of the apostles, who cannot consider themselves to be any of these things, but who instead consider themselves to be fools, in the sense that they have been rejected by the society and scoffed at and kicked around, and men who are powerless and despised by the world. His next statement establishes that context where he says, until the present hour, we both hunger and thirst, and we are naked, and we are beaten repeatedly, and we are unestablished, and we toil laboring with our own hands. That word unestablished is actually um, astatio or astatus, meaning unstable, but it also means without state. So perhaps speaking of nuclear particles, it could be rendered unstable. Speak of people, and it could be without a home. Paul is reminding the Corinthians of the things that the apostles were suffering on account of the ministry of the gospel, that they should not exalt themselves, but also for reasons which become manifest with the questions which follow, where we continue with verse 12, and Paul says, Have we spoken well, railing at ourselves? Have we upheld, accusing ourselves, have we encouraged speaking badly of ourselves? Like the refuse of the cosmos, have we become scum of all things until now? Rather than speaking badly of ourselves, some manuscripts have blaspheming ourselves. And again, here, there are four clauses in these last two verses, which we have read as questions, and they are, although none of the other translations mark them as questions. Three of these clauses contain a verb which is a medium voice participle. Railing at ourselves comes from the Greek word loidoruminoi. Accusing ourselves comes from the Greek word diokominoi. 
and speaking badly of ourselves comes from the Greek word duste muminoi. Yes, they are tongue twisters. The medium voice, according to the Greek grammars, has a reflexive force, and the subject produces and receives the action. That's the reason why the expressions of these medium voice verbs in our translations here are emphatic. Paul is illustrating the behavior of the apostles in their own sorrowful and humble condition that no matter how badly things have gone for them, as he says in verse 11, they hungered, they thirsted, they were naked, they were beaten, they were without homes. No matter how badly things have gone for them, they have not sunk to the level of railing at one another, or accusing, or blaspheming one another. The rhetorical questions indicate that if they had done such things, it would not have been for good. Paul is making these illustrations because evidently, as he had previously mentioned, for the benefit of a certain individual, some of the Corinthians had inflated themselves against the others. Evidently, they made a distinction, an exception regarding the law of God, for the benefit of one individual, which precluded them from judging according to Scripture. Then, evidently, they began railing at or speaking badly or accusing one another because of the division. If the apostles had done any of those things, during their own trials, they would have been the scum of the earth. But Paul is not yet pointing any fingers in order to accuse certain Corinthians of doing these things. He instead makes these examples, hoping that they may repent of their error and follow them. Therefore, he says in verse 14, I do not write these things regarding you, but as I would advise my beloved children. I've caught some flack over my translation of that Greek word, entrepo here, which in the King James Version says, for your shame, but in the Christian New Testament, simply regarding you. This Greek word, And trepo, here is to regard, it's Strong's number 1788. If you look it up in Thayer's lexicon, its first definition is to regard, to esteem, to revere, to reverence. Its second definition is to shame. For this word, the King James Version has to be ashamed. It has to revere. It has to reverence, Matthew 21, 37, Mark 12, 6. How could it mean to revere something, and how could it mean to shame at the same time? It's because the word really doesn't mean either of those things. 
It literally means to turn about, to linger, to hesitate, to turn towards, to give heed to, to pay regard to, to respect or to reverence. And it can also mean to shame in certain contexts, but the word is not, the meaning of the word is not to shame. However, if Paul had written all of those things regarding the Corinthians, if he said, these things I write regard you, then indeed it would be a shame to them because everything that Paul wrote is something which is shameful to do. So rather than write accusations against the Corinthians, Paul used himself and Apollos as examples instead. He, as the King James has, transferred these things to himself and Apollos in a figure, language which is kind of difficult to understand. He used himself and Apollos as examples instead and made rhetorical arguments in order to convince the Corinthians who were doing these things, but whom Paul was not pointing out, that they should refrain from such behavior. Verse 15. Although you may have a myriad of tutors among the anointed, certainly not many fathers. Indeed, in Christ Yahshua, through the good message, I have begotten you. Therefore, I encourage you, become imitators of me. Paul is not saying that the Corinthians actually had a myriad of tutors in Christ or among the anointed, but that even if they did, it was he who originally brought them to the gospel. The analogy of teacher to student as father to child was very common in the ancient world. And therefore, Christ said, Call no man your father upon the earth, for one is your father meaning God. Yet Paul is not asking to be called father. He is only exhorting the Corinthians to imitate him in the examples that he makes here because they learned the gospel from him at the first. The Apostle John frequently made the same analogy in his first epistle, calling his readers his children. And also in his third, where he had written, The elder unto the well-beloved Gaius, whom I love in the truth. Beloved, I wish above all things that thou mayest prosper and be in health, even as thy soul prospers. For I rejoiced greatly, when the brethren came and testified of the truth that is in me, even as thou walkest in the truth, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in the truth. So John had also considered those whom he had brought the gospel, whom he had brought to the gospel, to be his children. The term Papa was, however, a term of endearment which early Christians applied to certain of their leaders, those who they felt merited the title, which wasn't really a title. It was really simply 
an address. And they did so in spite of the admonition of Christ. In the writings of Eusebius and other early Christians, it is evident that certain Christian assemblies outside of Rome, and especially the assembly of Antioch, had used the term to describe their own bishops or other elders, and only later did the Bishop of Rome pilfer the term for himself. Yet it was only a term of endearment for a respected elder, and it was never meant to be a formal title as Christ condemns such a use. So I don't make too much of Paul's saying that they had many teachers, but certainly not many fathers, because in Christ Yahshua, he had begotten them through the good message. The Apostle John saw his Christian students in the same light. Verse 17. For this reason, I have dispatched Timotheus to you, who is my beloved and faithful child in the prince, or in the Lord, who will remind you of my ways which are in Christ, just as I always teach in every assembly. We do not have a record of Paul sending Timothy to Corinth. But while Paul was in Ephesus, we see in Acts chapter 19 that he had sent Timothy and Erastus to Macedonia, where it says, So he sent into Macedonia two of them that ministered unto him, Timotheus and Erastus, but he himself stayed in Asia for a season. From the account in Acts chapter 20, and from the salutation of Paul's epistle to the Romans, it is evident that both Timothy and Erastus are with Paul when that epistle is written in the Troad. Later on, from Rome, Paul, writing to Timothy, states that Erastus abode at Corinth. So there's a connection of Erastus to Corinth. It is quite possible that Timothy and Erastus were to travel to Corinth as well as to Macedonia. But the Corinth is simply not mentioned in Luke's abbreviated account. When Paul wrote his second epistle to the Corinthians, perhaps a year or so after writing this epistle, Timothy is with him and is mentioned in the salutation. Therefore, it seems that Timothy delivered this very epistle to the Corinthians and brought an answer back to Paul, which we do no longer have, which precipitated his second epistle and his subsequent visit with them, which is barely recorded in Acts chapter 20, where it only says that Paul went to Greece and stayed three months. So it's likely that Timothy delivered this epistle to the Corinthians. Verse 18. Now, concerning my not coming to you, some had been indignant, but I will come to you soon, if the prince wishes, and I will know not the speech of those who have inflated themselves, but the power. 
And as we had discussed in earlier portions of this presentation of 1 Corinthians, this is not the first epistle which Paul had written to them. And this very epistle is written in response to correspondence which he had received from them. Yet all of these earlier correspondences between Paul and the Corinthians are, unfortunately, now lost. Evidently, while Paul was in Ephesus, he had already had one exchange of letters with them. And while they requested his presence in Corinth, he was not able to oblige them. So it must have been something serious that they wanted him for. And Paul says, for, the, for not in speech is the kingdom of Yahweh, but in power. We have demonstrated that both of Paul's existing letters to the Corinthians were written between his two visits to Corinth. Acts chapter 18 is one. Acts chapter 20 is another. Therefore, it is descriptive of his year and a half stay in the Corinth, described in Acts chapter 18, where Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and said, Truly the signs of an apostle were wrought among you in all patience, in signs and wonders and mighty deeds. We had discussed while presenting chapter 2 of this epistle that while the book of Acts does not tell us much of what happened in Corinth at that time, there must have been signs and wonders and mighty deeds. There must have been some significant events related to Paul's ministry which had happened there. In chapter 2 of this epistle, he had written that, and my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power. We saw it presenting 1 Corinthians chapter 2 to demonstrate that it is to the credit of the writers of the Gospels, the Epistles, the Book of Acts, that most of these miracles are not recorded. They, they, they did not put the miracles out in front when they wrote their records of the Acts, but rather they put the Gospel message first. Verse 21, What do you wish? Should I come to you with a rod or in love and gentleness in spirit. Here Paul expresses the desire that the Corinthians heed to his admonitions and follow the model of humility in Christ which the apostles themselves had followed. True humility is in the subjection of oneself to the word of God. Therefore, the Apostle James wrote in chapter 4 of his epistle, Or do you suppose that vainly, the scripture says, with envy yearns the spirit which dwells in us? But more greatly, he gives favor, on which account it says, Yahweh opposes the arrogant, but he gives favor to the humble. Therefore, subject yourselves to Yahweh, if you're humble, you subject yourself to the word of God. But stand against the false accuser or the devil. 
and he shall flee from you. With this, we shall commence with 1 Corinthians chapter 5, where Paul explains the reasons for addressing the contention found amongst the Corinthians in chapter 4. Fornication is generally reported among you, and fornication so bad that such is not even among the heathens for one to have his father's wife. The word heathens would more properly be rendered nations. However, the inference is to the pagan nations of the Oikumene. So the word heathens is, in that context, not improper. Paul asserts that the sin is so horrific that even the pagans would not mention it. And it is true that the Romans had laws governing proper and improper marital relations, as the Greeks and others did before them. But those laws weren't exactly congruent to the ones found in Hebrew Scripture. But the Romans would have forbid such a, such a, such a marriage. Some manuscripts have not even named among the heathens, which we see reflected in the King James Version, literally, so bad that such is not even among the heathens. For one to have his father's wife could simply infer that the, the pagan nations would not even allow such a relationship. The word fornication is confusing to many people because it appears in diverse contexts throughout the scripture. Some would assert that fornication is race mixing, and it is. But others would assert that fornication is prostitution. And of course, they are not wrong to make that assertion. Especially since the Greek word, pornia, which is often translated as fornication, literally refers to prostitution. But the people that, is, that assert that fornication means prostitution are wrong to attempt to use examples whereby fornication, the text, is clearly prostitution in order to somehow prove that fornication is not race mixing. And I should have said the context. In truth, fornication is both. Fornication is race mixing or fornication is prostitution, or it's other things as well. In truth, fornication is illicit sexual activity. If you sleep with a tree, it's fornication. And therefore, it may describe either race mixing or prostitution or any number of other sexual sins. According to um, Liddell and Scott, and I 
am referencing here the large ninth edition of the lexicon. Phalaris, a Greek writer of the 6th century BC, as well as Demosthenes, a Greek writer of the 4th century BC, both use the same Greek word, pornaya, to describe the actions of sodomites that were not necessarily prostitutes. So the word had a wider range of use than its literal meaning. In the Septuagint, pornaya was frequently a metaphor used in reference to idolatry. When the children of Israel married themselves to the foreign races, they were depicted as committing such idolatry because Yahweh demanded that the children of Israel remain separate from the other nations. Therefore, we may read in Hosea chapter 5 from verse 3, and it says, I know Ephraim, and Israel is not hid from me. For now, O Ephraim, thou committest whoredom, and Israel is defiled. They will not frame their doings to turn unto their God, for the spirit of whoredoms is in the midst of them, and they have known not Yahweh. And the pride of Israel does testify to his face. Therefore shall Israel and Ephraim fall in their iniquity, and Judah also shall fall with them. They shall go with their flocks and with their herds to seek Yahweh, but they shall not find him. He has withdrawn himself from them. They have dealt treacherously against Yahweh, for they have begotten strange children. Now a month shall a month devour them with their portions. The strange children, with all certainty, were the children which resulted from the Israelites having mixed themselves with the people of other nations in their whoredoms. Which goes a lot deeper than mere idol worship. Idolatry has a deeper meaning in Scripture than that. In um, Revelation chapter 2, we see that Jezebel would not repent of her fornication, which she taught to the servants of God. And Yahweh said, or this is the revelation, so we can call him Yahshua Christ. Jesus said, that nice, kind, benevolent Jesus that the mainstream Judeo-tards just love, Jesus said that because Jezebel would not repent of her fornication, he would kill her children with death. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul makes a clear reference to fornication as race mixing, where he uses it in reference to an event where the men of Israel had joined themselves to the daughters of Moab, which is found in Numbers chapter 25. And likewise, Judah tests that fornication, or pornaya, is the pursuit of strange flesh. That's race mixing. 
Here Paul uses pornia to describe an illicit relationship between a man and his father's wife, who is not necessarily his mother. So pornia is most literally prostitution, but the word was also used to describe other illicit sexual activities as well. When an Israelite engages in illicit sexual activity, he is engaging in a form of prostitution. He sells his relationship with his God for the temporary pleasures found in the lusts of the world. As to the man and his father's wife, the law of Yahweh says in Deuteronomy chapter 22 that a man shall not take his father's wife nor discover his father's skirt. Then in chapter 27 it says, Cursed be he that lieth with his father's wife because he uncovereth his father's skirt. 1 Corinthians Chapter 5, verse 2. And you are inflated, and rather you have not mourned, in order that he who did this deed would be taken from your midst. The majority text has, would be expelled from your midst. Where the King James Version has, might be taken away from among you. The text of the Nestle A-Land in both 27th and 28th editions marks this entire verse as a question, which only a few of the major English translations follow, which goes to show you how, when, when translating, how um, subjective it is to decide whether or not any particular statement is explanatory or interrogatory. It's very subjective. The Nestle Land version would read, and are you inflated, and rather you have not mourned that he who did this deed would be taken from your midst? Paul is apparently saying that if the assembly had humbled themselves and mourned upon hearing that one of their members sinned in this manner, that the sinner would have been removed from their company providentially. Verse 3, for certain I, being absent in body but being present in spirit, already as if being present have determined just who has been perpetrating this. Here Paul asserts that he knew by the spirit which of the Corinthians had perpetrated this deed, although he had apparently not been told anything specific. The revelation is therefore attributed to one aspect of the prophetic ability. The Greek word kakrina is determined here. It is a perfect tense form of the verb krino, that same verb which is usually translated judge. It means to separate, to part, to distinguish, to pick out, to choose. So here it is determined in the sense of 
selecting or distinguishing rather than judged, as it appears in the King James Version here. That word may be understood in another incorrect context. The word crino has an array of meanings, which are sometimes difficult to determine in English because of our disassociation from first century Greek culture. Paul will explain Christian judgment in 1 Corinthians 5.12, where he instructs his readers specifically as to how this situation should be handled. And verse 4 says, In the name of our Prince, Yahshua Christ, your gathering together and of my spirit, with the power of Prince Yahshua, deliver such a wretch to the adversary or to Satan for destruction of the flesh, in order that the spirit may be preserved in the day of the Prince. Paul made a similar statement in 1 Timothy chapter 1, where he says, Holding faith and a good conscience, which some, having put away concerning faith, have made shipwreck, of whom is Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I had delivered unto Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. So we see that sinners, as well as those who lose their compass in the faith in one way or another and become shipwrecks, are delivered to the adversary, to Satan, that in their flesh they may be destroyed. Yet their spirits are preserved in the day of Christ. Note that Paul did not say that their spirits would be preserved until the day of Christ, as if they faced some horrific judgment at that time. Rather, Paul said that their spirits in both places, Paul said, I'm sorry, here in, I'm confusing this with another passage, here in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul said that he should be delivered unto Satan that the flesh may be destroyed, but the spirit would be preserved in the day of Christ. He said the same thing of this man, who being such a dreadful sinner, he should be delivered to the adversary or to Satan for destruction of the flesh in order that his spirit may be preserved in the day of Christ. All of this agrees with what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, that in the day of Christ, all would have approval from Yahweh. Even the sinner, his spirit would be preserved in the day of Christ. That also agrees with what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, where he explained that even those whose works burned up completely in the day of judgment would nevertheless 
be preserved in the end. We will quote that passage again. Where Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 speaks allegorically of a man's life. Life works. And Paul says that if any man's work shall be burned with fire, shall be burned, I'm sorry, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so is by fire. Now, here in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul says of a fornicator that the Christian assembly should deliver such a rest to the adversary for destruction of the flesh in order that the spirit may be preserved in the day of the Lord. In both cases, we see that although a man was leading a useless, sinful life, his spirit would still survive in the day of Christ, which is a reference to the great day of judgment spoken of in Revelation chapter 20, where it says, And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. And the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every man, according to their works. Yet even if their works burn completely, they themselves shall still be saved, although they shall suffer loss, having no reward. Only those written into the Lamb's book of life are judged in this manner. Those not written into the book of life bypass this judgment because they are cast directly into the lake of fire right after hell and death, as it says in Revelation 20.15. That is the judgment seat of Christ, which is reserved for the Adamic race at the end of days. That is not to be confused with the fiery trials of this life, which we all undergo, as Peter wrote in the fourth chapter of his first epistle, from verse 12. Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you. But rejoice, inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory shall be revealed, you may be glad also with exceeding joy. Christians within the body of Christ may hope to escape such trials, and at least to withstand them when they do befall them. For this reason, Peter also wrote in chapter 5 of that same epistle, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walks about, seeking whom he may devour. Whom resist steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. The Apostle John explains why we are afflicted in the world. And this is why Christians should come 
out of the world should take their focus, their hopes, their, their desires, their interests, and remove them from the world. Because as he says in 1 John chapter 5, we know that we are from of God, and the whole society lies in the power of the evil one. In respect of this, Paul warns the Christian in Ephesians chapter 6, Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand. Paul spoke often of temptation. And he warned the Thessalonians in his first epistle to them in chapter 3, that for this cause, when I could no longer forbear, I sent to know your faith, lest by some means the tempter has tempted you and our labor be in vain. That Judah comes along and tries to convince you that there's evolution and not God, he's one of those tempters. That's just one example. Christians are tried by Satan, by the power of the adversaries of Christ who are in the world, and they hope and should even expect to prevail when they remain steadfast in Christ. However, when Christians fall into sin, they may very well be delivered to Satan, delivered to the enemies of God who are in the world for destruction of the flesh. As it is written in Job chapter 16, God has delivered me to the ungodly and turned me over into the hands of the wicked. Even then, the redemic spirit shall live in the day of Christ because the entire Adamic race has a spirit eternal from God, which has already been created to be immortal. Verse 6. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the entire dough? The Codex Claromontanus has a little leaven, beguiles the entire dough. Cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new dough, just as you are unleavened. Leaven does not always represent something bad. In fact, sometimes it can be an analogy for something good. As this saying of Christ is recorded in Matthew chapter 13, Verse 33, another parable spoke he to them. The kingdom of heaven is like unto leaven which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal till the whole was leavened. However, here Paul uses leaven as an analogy for something bad, as Christ also did, as it is recorded in Luke chapter 12. Beware ye the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy, for there is nothing covered that shall not be revealed, neither hid that shall not be known. 
And, of course, leaven mixed into flour is at first difficult for men to perceive, a trait which makes such analogies effective. Paul finished verse 7 by writing, Since also our Passover, Christ, has been sacrificed. The majority text and some late manuscripts have, since also our Passover, for our benefit, has Christ been sacrificed. Upon first seeing Yahshua Christ, John the Baptist is recorded as having said, Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world, of the society. John 1.29. Christ was the Lamb of God, as he is also frequently portrayed in the Revelation, as he himself said as it is recorded in Matthew chapter 26. And it came to pass, when Jesus had finished all these things, he said unto his disciples, Ye know that after two days is the feast of Passover, and the Son of Man is betrayed to be crucified. Christ, the Lamb of God, was slain on the Passover for the remittance of sins to Israel. Therefore, to Christian Israelites, he is the new Passover. This, of course, should be a basic fundamental of Christian doctrine. In the Old Testament, Israelites were forbidden to have leaven in their homes or in their possession during the Passover and they were commanded to dispose of all leaven even before the Passover began. From Exodus chapter 12, verse 14, And this day shall be unto you for a memorial, and you shall keep it a feast to Yahweh throughout your generations. You shall keep it a feast by an ordinance forever. Seven days shall ye eat unleavened bread. Even the first day ye shall put away leaven out of your houses. For whosoever eats leavened bread from the first day unto the seventh day, that soul shall be cut off from Israel. This is an analogy for Christians coming to Christ. A Christian cannot come to Christ our Passover if he still possesses the old leaven of those worldly religions and holds on to worldly ideals. We are to cleanse out all the old leaven. Only then can we come to Christ with sincerity and within the demands of Yahweh our God, who demands of us to get rid of that leaven before we arrive at Passover, which is Christ. Consequently, we should keep the festival not with old leaven, nor with leaven of sloth and wickedness, 
but with unleavened sincerity and truth. Here we see that Paul further advises Christians to keep the Feast of Passover. However, Passover should not be confused with the pagan Easter rituals, as even the King James Version did in Acts chapter 12, I believe. That is disgraceful to take that word Passover and Pascha for Passover and translate it as Easter. That's incredible. Verse 9. I had written to you in a letter not to associate with fornicators, not at all with the fornicators of this world or of this society, or with the covetous or rapacious or idolaters, seeing that you are therefore obliged to come out from the cosmos or from the society. The fornicators of this world certainly appeared to be those same people that the Apostle John had described as antichrists, and also those same people about whom Jude and Peter had written in their epistles, as Jude had explained. For there are certain men crept in unawares, who were before of old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness and denying the only Lord God and our Lord, Jesus Christ. After connecting these men who crept in unawares, therefore they could not be Israelites. They must have come from somewhere outside of the body of Israel. And after connecting these to the angels, which kept not their first estate, and to Sodom and Gomorrah, and to fornication and the pursuit of strange flesh, Jude said, verse 10, But these speak evil of those things which they know not, but what they know naturally as brute beasts, in those things they corrupt themselves, the fornicators of this world. The apostle then warned, these are spots in your feast of charity. So they can't be Christians. They can't even be candidates for Christianity. These are spots in your feasts of charity when they feast with you, feeding themselves without fear. Clouds they are without water, carried about of the wind trees whose fruit withers without fruit twice dead plucked up by the roots raging waves of the sea foaming out of their own shame wandering stars to whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever the apostle Peter described these same men where he said but these as natural brute beasts made to be taken and destroyed speak evil of things that they understand not and shall utterly perish in their own corruption, and shall receive the reward of unrighteousness, as they that count it pleasure to riot in the daytime. Spots they are, and blemishes, sporting themselves with their own deceivings while they feast with you. They're deceiving themselves, believing they could share in Christian communion having eyes full of adultery, and that cannot cease from sin, 
beguiling unstable souls, a heart they have exercised with covetous practices, cursed children. These are wells without water. Clouds that are carried with the tempest, to whom the mist of darkness is reserved forever. These infiltrators into ancient Israel are the same people who rejected Christ. As the Apostle John said in the second chapter of his first epistle, little children, it is the last time. And as he has heard that the Antichrist shall come. Even now there are many Antichrists, whereby we know that it is the last time. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would no doubt have continued with us. But they went out that they might be made manifest that they were not all of us. Today we know these people in large part as Jews. We also know them as Arabs and other things. These are indeed the fornicators of this world and are themselves a corrupted, mongrelized race. Today, many of them are Catholics and Protestants, Hagee and Olstein. These are a distinct class who can never have fellowship with Christ, no matter what they say on TV. And the gospel offers them no prospect of conversion to Christ. With these, Christians should have no communion at all. And there is no chance of their repentance or rehabilitation or acceptance. They themselves are devils seeking whom they may devour, as the apostles warn us that they feast among us with eyes full of adultery, beguiling unstable souls with covetous practices. Satan or the adversary, is here with us in this world. He is certainly not in heaven. These are the fornicators of this world. Verse 11, But presently I have written to you not to associate with any brother if he is being designated a fornicator, or covetous, or an idolater, or abusive, or drunken, or rapacious, not even to eat with such a wretch. And from this line, we see that the fornicators of this world are not mere brethren who may sin, but they are another matter entirely, as we have just described from the writings of Paul and the other apostles. Paul indeed agrees, we're in a second epistle to the Thessalonians, he describes Satan as being contemporary in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, and sitting in the temple of God, imagining for himself to be a god. And with that, Paul could only have been describing the high priests of his time, who were Edomite Sadducees. Then in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, Paul exhorted the Thessalonians thusly, where he said, for what remains, brethren, for us, in order that the word of the prince may move quickly and be extolled, just as even with you, and that we should be protected from those disgusting and wicked men, since the faith is not for all. 
But trustworthy is the prince who will establish you and keep you from the wicked. There, he must have been referring to the same fornicators of this world. However, in reference to our own brethren who are sinful, we must also treat them as the faithless and put them outside the Christian assembly. So long as they refuse to repent, they should be delivered to Satan. Therefore, Paul continues, verse 12, What is it to me to judge those outside? In other words, we don't give one wit about non-Christians. We don't care about them. Not at all should you judge those within you or those among you. And here, when I translated the Christianian New Testament, I made a conscious decision that while this phrase, those within you, may have been better rendered, those among you, the literal sense was purposely left here so that the meaning of similar phrases, as they often appear in the archaic English of the King James Version, might be made manifest. The phrase, those outside, refers to those who are not or even cannot be a part of the Christian assembly. They don't qualify. They're not Israel. The phrase, within you, in reference to a group, means among you. And a similar phrase was uttered by Christ in Luke. The kingdom of heaven is among you, speaking to the bigger group. The King James Version has in this verse, them that are without and them that are within. Those who are outside of the group, those who are part of the group. We do not judge those among us. But those outside, Yahweh judges. You will expel the wicked from amongst yourselves so we don't judge those among us. But when they become unrepentant sinners, we have to put them outside of us. We don't judge them. We don't condemn them. Rather, we ostracize them. And Yahweh judges them. Those outside, Yahweh judges. You will expel the wicked from amongst yourselves. Here Paul quotes Deuteronomy 17.7. And the Greek is nearly identical to that of the Septuagint. There the law discusses the execution of certain sinners, and it says, He shall die on a testimony of two or three witnesses. A man who is put to death shall not be put to death for one witness. And the hand of the witnesses shall be upon him among the first to put him to death. And the hand of the people at the last so shalt thou remove the evil one from among yourselves. Or as Paul, or as we have translated Paul's statement, you will expel the wicked from amongst yourselves. Your Christian Israelite brethren who are unrepentant sinners are to be accounted with the wicked, are to be accounted with those outside. Why? So that the flesh may be destroyed, but the spirit shall live in the day of Christ.
Yet, the children of Israel lost the ability to enforce the law of Yahweh because they did not keep the law of Yahweh. And therefore, the children of Israel are under the laws of the beast systems prophesied in the word of Yahweh. Early Christians, like the Judeans, could not lawfully execute sinners. The Judeans, those who rejected Christ, many of them were Judeans, some of them were Edomites. The Judeans even complained about this when Pilate told them to dispose of the Christ for themselves. And we read in John chapter 18, verse 31, Therefore Pilate said unto them, you take him and judge him according to your law. The Judeans said to him, it is not lawful for us to slay anyone. So even though this worked out to the fulfillment of the gospel of Christ in the manner in which he should die, we see that if a Judean wanted to execute a righteous judgment, it was not lawful for him to do so. So in that same manner, neither could Christians uphold the law of God by executing sinners for themselves. And today, Christians still cannot uphold the law of God because we are still under this Babylonian system of beast empires. Today, we are under the eighth beast of revelation. Yet here Paul assures Christians that Yahweh God judges those who are disobedient when Christians separate themselves from them, delivering them to Satan, delivering them to the wicked people who are outside of the Christian community by disassociating with them. So Paul explained to Timothy that he delivered Hymenaeus and Alexander unto Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Speaking of this very fornicator, Paul advised these Corinthians here to deliver such a wretch to the adversary, or Satan, for the destruction of the flesh, in order that the spirit may be preserved in the day of the prince. Christians should separate themselves from unrepentant sinners and putting them out of their Christian community. They are delivering them to Satan. They should pray that Yahweh God judges them swiftly. As in the Old Testament, when the children of Israel were disobedient, Yahweh uses his enemies to chastise his people. Thank you for listening. Tomorrow night, open lines. Sunday afternoon, Christinelia Europe and Sven Longshanks. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and good night.